Welcome to Decision, Decision Space, Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we're off to explore for lost cities. But will the cost of our expeditions eclipse the impact of our findings? Well, not for you, dear listener, because the end of the episode, you're sure to have discovered a veritable bounty of interesting ideas about this nearly quarter century old classic. Well done, Jake. Dang, what an intro. <laughs> I'm excited because it's Reiner Knizia Day. I, I woke up, I checked the calendar, and it said, Reiner Knizia Day. And I had a giant smile on my face. I put on my Lost City socks. And under lost socks, you could have exactly found my lost lost city socks, brushed my teeth, thinking joyously about classic card games, and just smiled. How are you feeling going into this episode, Jake? Feeling good, uh, certainly not the level of Reiner Knizia love that you have, but I do feel like I'm having a growing little warmth in my heart, uh, (sighs) for uh, Reiner Knizia and his games that is ever so slowly expanding. So who knows, perhaps today will be the day that my heart grows three sizes, or maybe I will once again be the Grinch coming to stomp down on Brendan's unbridled joy. It gives me the chills. It's like, you know, introducing a a musician that you love to your friend, and then you see them sort of like nodding their head. Like I'm hoping by the end of this episode, Jake will be nodding his head along to the Lost Cities. It's like you have the opportunity to like, introduced to your friends the first time like have you heard of the beatles and they're yeah, like yeah. what are the beatles <laughs> you're like oh boy let's play them well <laughs> let's just get into it then i want to hear your 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 overview your snippet your synopsis your micro review okay lost cities is a fantastic light breezy card game that has a few rough edges that for me makes it a game that I'm not sure if it's one I really, really want to plumb the depths of, but I think I do enjoy it quite a bit for what it is. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10, a game I very much enjoyed exploring with you, Brendan. Nice. Streaking off not having 7s at the very least for Jake. Rip Force last week and now Lost Cities. Okay, here's mine. Lost Cities hits all the emotional beats of the setting it depicts. It's nerve-wracking planning expeditions into so many unknown areas. Uh, And to come out on top, oftentimes one has to be daring to go off hunches and to take necessary risks. Lost Cities, for me, is a near-perfect numbers-on-cards game. It's approachable, well-paced, dynamic, and allows for player-directive objective setting. If people aren't playing Lost Cities another quarter century from now, it will be a real shame. 9.5 out of 10. Nice. So we've exactly swapped from last week. I love it. How did I not know that you would open with like Lost Cities as a masterpiece of theme? I should have seen that coming, but yet I was still (laughs) once again shook by that characterization. (laughs) I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I do think that the the emotionally resonant like thematic beats are there. And that's what Reiner, Reiner Knizia does so well. We'll get into it more, right? Like, I don't feel like I'm actually planning expeditions. But I do feel like some of the emotional hits that you might experience while planning expeditions are here. And the agony of trying to f- figure out where to put my resources when I have five different options is yeah. real. And you can blindly stumble into the jungle and, and hope you come out alive. Okay, so I guess with that, I, I want to do a little bit of background on this game. So we've said it a million times. This is a Reiner Knizia designed two-player card game that really 
the core of it is hand management. It's published by Cosmos, and I believe has been ever since it was first published in 1999. And as with most Reiner Knizia games, I think it's important to sort of contextualize the game we're covering within the rest of his ludography. Um, so 1999, before this, in 1997, we had Tigers and Euphrates. Then he followed it up in 98 with Through the Desert and Samurai. And then in 1999, there was Raw. Lost Cities is sort of the first of the series of card games that come out all really close together. They all share similar mechanics um, in that you have a shared line between you and your opponent. They're two-player card games and drawing cards and speculating what cards you might draw is important to them. So those games are Lost Cities in 1999 and Shot and Todden in 1999 and then Battle Line, which is basically also Shot and Todden, but with some added elements, comes out in 2000. So I think that because of the proximity of their publication, we can assume that Lost Cities, Shot and Todden, and Battle Line all come out of the same inspiration flurry, right? Like a year later in game design, in the game world, it's really hard to interpret what idea came first. So I think we can just assume they're all the same. This episode, we're mostly going to be talking about Lost Cities. We might touch on Sean Todd and Slash Battle Line a little bit at the end. I think you're also leaving out one really important uh, piece of design history for this game, which would be that 22 years after Lost Cities is released, uh, Reiner Kizia would finally perfect the ideas and publish Lost Cities Roll and Write. Uh, <laughs> oh right 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 yeah i don't, I don't know how you forget that uh, <laughs> that is pretty amazing though like two decades later to go back to the well it's one one can dream <laughs> brendan before we get into the rules overview let's just take a very brief pause to plug our patreon we have a patreon for decision space if you enjoy this show that we put out every single week uh, and spend a lot of time uh putting into it uh, you can choose to support us on Patreon. You can go to decisionspace.com slash Patreon uh, or patreon.com slash decisionspace. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Of course, if you don't uh, feel like doing that or don't have the means to do that, as obviously uh, money is tight for a lot of people right now, uh, what with crazy inflation, please stick around. You're always more than welcome to stay here and enjoy these episodes. But we did want to make you aware of that. Uh, should you choose to participate. And one cool perk of that is that our patrons get to vote on games we cover on the show. Uh, so news of what game is winning the current vote to come soon. And it's decisionspacepodcast.com. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Patreon. yeah. Thank yeah, yeah. you. I don't know, dear listener, what you find at decisionspace.com. We don't vouch for its contents. Okay, great. Well, Brendan, with that out of the way, let's jump right into your amazing rules overview. I have a feeling it'll be a quick one, and then we'll be right back into our main discussion. Lost Cities is a two-player hand management card game in which players build ascending runs in five differently colored suits, red, green, blue, white, and yellow. These suits are functionally identical, however, each suit must be played to its own specific expedition lane on the player board. There are values 2 through 10 of each suit and three wager cards in each of the five colors. Players have a hand of eight cards, and on their turn they have two options. They can discard a card to the shared discard pile of the matching color, i.e. red cards are discarded to the shared red discard pile, or two, they may play one card that is a higher value than those previously played to their board in the corresponding color location. For example, they may play down a green five to their green line, but only if they do not have a green six or higher value card already down. 
Then players refill their hand by taking either the top card from any discard pile or drawing the top card off the deck. Play continues this way until the draw deck is empty, which triggers the end of the round. Lost City's scoring system is what distinguishes it. Each time a player adds a card to a lane for the first time, they receive negative 20 points. Then every card they add to that row subsequently counts as positive points. So players typically only want to play cards to an expedition lane if they think they can score positively in the long run. Back to those wager cards though. These cards must be played before any non-wager cards are played to a lane, and they act as a score multiplier for that lane. So if a player has one wager card in the yellow expedition and scores eight points, they instead score 16 points. If they have two wager cards, they instead score three times as much, 24 points. However, these cards act as a multiplier for negative points as well. For example, if a player has two wagers down and only managed to add a three value card to their lane, then they receive a heartbreaking negative 51 points at the end of the game for that lane. As you can see, utilizing these wager cards is key to scoring well in Lost Cities. Each round, players tabulate their score, and then after three rounds, the player with the highest total wins. And we're back. Brendan, thanks so much for recording that as always. Uh, hopefully that gave you a little bit of a better idea of what is going on in this game. If you still need some more uh, information about it, you can boot it up on Board Game Arena, where I think it's a free-to-play, right? It's not a premium game there. I believe so. You know, you can literally learn this game in a matter of minutes. Very, very quick teach. Yeah, this this one, I think I, I should have taught you the whole rules in that, in that overview. But I will say one thing I didn't totally get into that I think is going to really inform this conversation is the shape of the deck. It just impacts how much you think about everything in this game, which is that there's five different suits uh, of five different colors. The colors don't matter except that they're different. Values two to 10 in those. So it's uh, nine cards each, which are 45 cards across the five suits. And then there's three wager cards per suit uh, for a 60 card deck total. And again, the wager cards are the one that act as end round multipliers for that color. So you're, if you have one wager card, you get two times the points, whether it's positive or negative, uh, two, then you get three times. Or if you have all three, four times the number of points, which is bonkers. Okay, that's characterized the decision space. Why don't you go first this time? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. Uh, no, this is a, I think this is a waning decision space game. So when early on, at least, you know, we're talking about the round structure of Lost Cities, because essentially the game structure of Lost Cities is that you play... The same, you play the game three times, record your scores, and whoever has the highest score after three plays of the game wins. And we'll get into what we think of that structure. But we're talking about uh, one play of Lost Cities. And that's because there's this moment early on where you are playing the hand management game and trying to get more information. You are basically researching with your with your draws and with your plays to the board, trying to figure out what the most optimal path between you and your opponent is going to be for you. So you're playing cards to the shared board, uh, hopefully not cards that your opponent wants. So if you need them again, you can pick them up again later. Uh, and you're sort of building up your information. Uh, and then there's this uh, inflection point at some point in the game where you sort of say, okay, I, I know I can at least go into this suit or I'm going to play to this suit to buy myself some more time. I think I'll break even on it. You do that. And then somewhere maybe halfway through the game, all of a sudden, the decision space has waned to about half the size. 
much of the card pool has is known between you and your opponent. There is hidden information, what's still in the deck, what's in your opponent's hand, um, but it's mostly known and it continues to wane really until the last card is drawn. Um, it never wanes completely because each player still has some hidden information of what's in their hand. So I think it's not the sort of game like maybe it's a waning decision space game like Spades where you have almost complete information by the end, but it really does wane. What do you think, Jake? I think that is a great characterization of it. I think it almost feels like the game has three distinct phases to me uh, at the beginning. And it's almost each third, right? So at the start, yeah. you have... So between two players, what's your your starting hand size is what? Eight. Eight. So you've got, we can do the math here, like 40-some cards remaining in the deck at the start. Yeah. So at the very beginning, you have so little information that you're just trying to play cards in a way that you're not boxing yourself into in in too tightly and that might be by boxing yourself into massive negative points or boxing in yourself into the number of cards you can actually play over the course of the game because you're right as soon as you play a numbered card you are fundamentally reducing the number of options you'll have to play in that space for the remainder of the game if you put a four down you've eliminated the option of putting down a three a two or any of the wager cards into that particular expedition and then I think the second phase of the game, when you get down to like about like 30 to 25 cards, it's kind of becoming clear to you what you're trying to accomplish over the course of the remainder of the game. Uh, and then, but there's still options and the best way to go about that. You're still thinking through like, am I still in a, a phase where I'm trying to draw more cards off the top of the deck or should I pick up some of the cards out in the middle? But by the time there's about 15 to 10 cards left, you have a hand of cards where you say like, okay, there are... 12 cards left in the game there's six cards i want to play so i have to you know like theoretically if we both are play picking a card off the top of the deck each time uh i will only have exactly enough time to play six cards so i need to start playing them down to my expeditions now uh, or i run the risk of not being able to at all um and i think once it gets to that third phase of the game you're right the decision space isn't necessarily zero but it is very much approaching that especially towards the end where you're like i have to play down this run of like eight nine into this particular stack and and i'm drawing you know there's there's not really a decision at that point yeah you've committed to your decisions in yeah. the mid game and you're basically executing them and sometimes hoping that you get a lucky draw that will add to what you can do not necessarily change your your the course of your actions because the the large negative penalty that you get for going on a new expedition sort of forces you out of starting new decks new sets right. late sometimes when you play right you like draw into this amazing set you get like eight nine ten or seven eight nine ten of a color you haven't started and it's like oh i don't have enough time to even start to do this and it can right. feel awful yeah so but i mean i think clearly uh you know the the main thrust as you point out, is a waning decision space getting smaller and smaller over the course of the game. What's so amazing about the game too, Jake, what you just sort of highlighted is that this feel of three really distinct phases that every time you play, you feel it as long as you're looking for them. But there's like we talked about with Rift Force last week, it doesn't say anything about three phases in the rulebook or anything like that, right? That's just an emergent consequence of the way that the flux of information works in the system. And it's so yeah. cool how well how well it plays out and the feel of the game. Yeah. What do you think about like the size of that decision space though? Because I think just by virtue of that limited hand size of eight and 
there are always going to be cards in your hand that for whatever reason you're not going to play. That could be because yep. I can't discard this blue eight because Brendan has a blue seven on his stack and he will pick that up and it will be worth, you know, 16 points to him. So I have to hold this in yep. my hand uh, or like I can't start this stack with the 10. So I'm holding that till later. So fundamentally the number of cards you're playing out or not fundamentally, functionally, the number of cards you can decide to play from your hand is probably really ranging from like six to one, like six, it seems even rare. Uh, so, and, and when you're playing a card, you know, for each of those, you have at most two options, but very often it's functionally a single option. The two options being play to the shared board or play to your own expeditions. Yeah, right. Yep. So I think like when you start thinking about the size of decision space on a given turn, it's really small, but it's one yeah. of those games where the the strategy, right? Like the decision space broadens out when you start thinking of a play, not as just doing one thing on an individual turn, but as like a play being a sequence of like two or three turns trying to set something up or, or learn something. I don't know. Which I think we see in a lot of Reiner Canizia games. Even like Tigers and Euphrates has this sum a little bit, Jake, where every unit of action on a given turn is relatively small. But this, so every action you take feels like progress towards a larger goal, which is great because it means that this, the turns in this game, especially once you hit the, the end of that sort of second phase where people have information, they've made decisions about uh, what objectives they're, they've set for themselves, right? Like I'm going to build a, the biggest run I can in the red expedition, I'm going for greens and I'm going for blues. I'm going to ignore whites and yellows. At that point in time, the turns can just fly because the individual decisions are so small. And I really like the, the pacing that that creates for the game. But I agree that the, the decision space itself, turn to turn, feels pretty slight, feels pretty narrow, just in purely by like the size of the subjective size of the tree the decision yeah. tree that you're offered, right? Like you don't have that many options. And then even strategically, if we pull back and sort of say like, okay, there's five expeditions that you can go on every single time you play. It's really rare that you're going to play cards into all five of them. Um, because that's a, you're going to have to get really high values in all five of them. Things are kind of going bad if you're doing that, I think. I think so too. Yeah, you've either you've gotten so lucky that, or not even, like if you're in all three or in all five, you're spread thin. Right. Honestly, you'd rather have more wagers in fewer expeditions and more cards in those fewer expeditions. But I think that the interesting decisions come on with like, which ones am I focusing on and how am I using those expeditions? Because you're not all necessarily using all expeditions to try to get the most points possible, right? Like sometimes you're playing into expeditions to buy yourself time. Like almost like the expedition is funding future expeditions if we're borrowing the like theming of this game, right? Where like sometimes I'll start with a hand of cards. Maybe I have the seven, eight, and nine, or even the values just add up to 20 of a certain set. And instead of playing those to the shared board, I just play them on my side to keep the the pace of play going and use those to buy time to draw cards to get information with developing my board without creating a shared space. And I think that that's where some of the most interesting decisions come strategically is knowing, okay, I'm laying down a six, so I'm cutting off values two through five and any potential wagers in this color, but it's going to be worth it because I'm going to use that to get information about where I should for- put my efforts in the future. And I think 
that's why I love the decisions in the game is yeah. around the planning phases. It makes me feel clever. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part of the game too. And I think what you're speaking to is the clarity of the decision space and, yeah. and also to the incentives for scoring in this game, which is where we're going next. Yeah. Um, but just before we leave the uh, characterizing decisions space portion of this, I do think it's worth touching on clarity because I think, interestingly, in some ways, this is a game where the clarity of the decision space is incredibly clear. Um, because, and by that, I mean, like, you want to play down more cards than less cards, theoretically, mm. in the game. Um, and when you're picking between playing cards, it's really easy to count up just, like, the number of options you're cutting off, right? Like... I, th I think a lot of times, you know, I, I have a turn in this game where I think, okay, I, you know, I have I have a, a seven to play into blue, you know, and I, I'd be playing on top of a four, or okay. I have like a six in green, and I'd be playing on top of a four. And it's like easy to think like, okay, if I play it on top of the four, that means I'm only like, a, like foregoing one possible card that I could play. Whereas if I play on top of blue, I'm forgoing not just the five, but also the six. And should those cards come up later, you know, I won't be able to play that. And, I, you know, and I think that is on its face incredibly clear. But what makes that fuzzy is like, of course, what, you know, you can intuit about your opponent's hand. Um, and so I think I think like those two factors taken together is what makes the decision space interesting agreed and i think that that what you just said at the end jake is is the crux of the game that keeps it really interesting is you're trying to infer what cards your opponent might have based on their actions and the game the decision space i would argue starts out pretty fuzzy just in terms of like strategically what you should be doing where you should be playing your cards but every turn every time you draw a card off the top of the deck right it's like you're sitting in the the decisions the decision space um optometrist doctor's <laughs> office chair and they're you know you're it's really fuzzy you have that thing over your face and you're looking at the decision space like one every, or two one, one or two, two. yep <laughs> and every time you draw a card it clicks one clear for you you're like approaching 2020 and the end of the second phase as you suggested they are right like planning objective selection and then executing on the objectives that you've basically set for yourself the inflection point of two to three is you hit 2020 vision and you know what you're doing yeah and i love that about this game a lot of games like the fuzziness of them stays pretty consistent as you move throughout or it grows a bunch and then shrinks down but lost cities is all about who can have the clearest picture of the decision space the soonest based on the information they have and make informed decisions on that and it's, it's awesome it's like a magic trick the thought that just popped into my head and that I'm going to say without thoughtful consideration. This is all I do, so I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy. It's just that, like, I wonder if this game, it feels like the most, like, distilled version of a game that's just all about decision space that we've covered, right? Like, hmm. it really feels like, as you put it, the game is, you know, and I, I guess it's, like, technically probably true for every game. That sure. the game is all about like understanding the decision space. Um, but this really puts it to you in like very concrete terms. It's just like a game about 
understanding what the game is <laughs> doled out to you turn by turn, you get a new piece of information. And because the shape, depending on the cards that you get, the shape of your decisions can change a lot, right? Like if I have all low values, what I'm going to be doing turn to turn is going to look really differently than if I'm dealt a hand of all high valued cards at the beginning. And these two hands can present really different paths through the decision space. So I think what you're saying in a lot of ways, Jake, is that like every game is about navigating this unique path through the decision space, just based on the randomness of your cards, which I, I think is true. Right. And some hands feel really great. And some hands feel like you're, you know, really up, up a creek. Yeah. And maybe it's not just decision space in general, but like more like that, the clarity, like the clarity, I, itself. I feel like the yeah. clarity of like, whatever capacity a decision space is like defined by clarity like this game feels like solely focused on that where if you take another game like castles of burgundy or something like yes like what you should be doing i don't know i don't get the same sense like from turn one in that game to turn 25 or whatever i don't really get the sense that like the clarity of the decision space has like is changed that much or that like understanding it is going to give me an advantage over other people in the game. Do you see where I'm going with this? I, I totally do. And I think part of that is even though you're presented all the options up front, you can do anything you want on any turn, whatever, complete agency of the options you're given. But it's so rare to, for a game to have such a defined, uh, but not defined, a distinct planning phase, right? Where like at the beginning of the game, you are doing this behavior where you are taking moves that you don't really do at the end a lot you're you're setting up it's really rare for a game to have this sort of planning phase to it i I can't think of a lot of other games where it feels like i'm figuring out what my plan is in the first third of my turns a lot of other games that we've covered on the show what you do early informs your plan as you follow them like my early turns in arnak inform what i will do later but i don't spend my early turns building up and building up and building up and then doing what I've planned to do, right? I'm kind of just doing what I'm doing throughout and sort of seeing where that path takes me. Whereas here, I'm figuring out what path to take and then I'm taking. It's like uh, going all the way back to when we covered Terraforming Mars on the show. I think one of the best things about the game that we both liked yep. was the like the awards and milestones where yeah. players get to activate this. They can take an action on their turn to say like, okay, we're gonna at the end of the game, whoever has the most of this resource or, you know, or the most of this type of tile is going to get points, right? It's like activating that end game scoring. Uh, And in a way, like in Lost Cities, almost every action that you're doing is like dictating that for yourself. Uh, And also for your opponent, because it's a zero sum game, right? So even though when I play a card in the blue that says I will score blue positive or negative points one way or another, it's also just activated just as much for my opponent because every positive point that you get is bad for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's points you, yeah, yeah. I think that I'm not surprised somehow the Terraforming Mars came up because I do think that that player, I called it in my intro, player-directed objective setting mm-hmm. is such a key aspect of what's appealing about this decision space where it, it sort of is the the ability to choose you're not like it's not like great western trail where you're saying like i'm gonna take this objective that says at the end of the game if i deliver to san francisco i get 10 extra points right it's not that it's am i going to play into the green expedition am i going on a green expedition if i am 
what am I doing there? Am I going for a sort of a middle outcome? Am I just biding time? Or am I, is that, am I all in on green? Am I trying to get three wagers down and just really spend my whole game trying to pile cards into it? And I think that what I really like about the game is the player agency over that objective. And this is twofold, right? Where like, if you lay down a seven, the ability, your objective then in green becomes to get the eight, nine, and the 10. Right. But if you if you lay down the two, then you have way more flexibility. And it really feels that way. Um, and I love that. I love yeah. that you have that agency. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. And I think one thing that I am find myself saying a lot on this show is that I really enjoy games that allow players to sort of call their shot. Like, say, mm, like this mm-hmm. is what I think I know about the decision space. This is what I think I know about the game state. And now I get the opportunity to declare that and then prove it out over the course of the game. And it feels like this game is really like all about that. Like the gut punch of your opponent plays down three wagers of a single color across the table from you. And you, they could have all that color, like three of the same color. They could have a handful of those cards, but they could also just be swinging for the fences and right. calling calling their shots. And I, I love that. I think those moments are really, they make you a little nervous at the table. When you're <laughs> playing, sure. You know, and it's, that's cool. I love when games make me nervous. That's right. an emotion I want to feel. Yeah. And like, you don't have to put anything into any suit ever, but every time you do it, you're saying like, I think that I'm going to, that this is going to be a valuable pursuit for yep. me. And it might be, it's not necessarily like I'm going to score a bunch of points off this. Like you said, it might be, this is going to be valuable, even though the three cards I have only add up to 18. I'm going to make those my next three plays to allow me to draw three cards off the top of the deck, learn a lot more about the game state, hopefully build up a run in my hand for something else that I do want to score. Uh, And and it's worth it to me to pay the cost of two measly points uh, in order to like get that cards and churn through the deck i think that one thing that links this game to shot and todd and slash battle line and I, I i really won't try to invoke those games too much because they're different games different things are going on but i think that one thing that links this game lost cities with them in my mind is the importance of card draw um and i think that drawing cards in lost cities is really exciting <laughs> it's really fun to pull cards off the top because when you get what you need it feels it it's in a, a moment of elation. And I think that a lot of games, the math of how the deck is built don't necessarily lead to these draws that leave room for elation. Um, and Lost Cities is a game almost all about drawing cards, right? Like the core mechanic in a lot of ways is I'm going to draw a card off the top of the deck and see if it was good or if I have to do that again. And <laughs> and yet it, it's, it works. And it, it yeah, it's like, I mean, you want to do that again. It's not like I yeah. have to do that again, but like ideally you're doing it in a way that is not like you don't have to pay a big price to yes. draw cards. Right? I feel yeah. like the the sense that I get when I draw a card that fits perfectly, you know, into one of my expeditions, like I had the three down and I just drew the floor. It's not like, yes, this is going to be a good play. It's like relief that I don't have to pay a big cost in some other way to draw my next card. It's like, okay, I get a break for one turn. I can just like yep. play this. Thank goodness. Totally. I don't have to put down a six of a value. I'm not going into risk my opponent taking it just to draw a card and make some room for myself. Right. Or yeah. like, or put down, you know, jump a couple of card numbers to put something down. Yep. And then inevitably, of course, like, Oh, I just put down the seven on top of five. That's not too bad. Draw your cards. The six. It's like, 
No, no. I think one thing that's really interesting about the game too, Jake, is early on in phase one, the value of different cards is unknown, right? Because if I put down, going back to that that metaphor, like I want to play down a six for my hand because I don't want it, a, a red six. I'm never going to go into red this game. I just know that that's the case. You haven't gone into it yet, but you might. If I play down that six, there are mi- multiple outcomes of what could happen. No one could ever pick up that card. And the like cost to the system was pretty low to me of putting that down. You could subsequently pick it up, put down three wager cards, and all of a sudden that card is worth 24 points to you, right? Like there, there's this huge band in terms of what the quote unquote cost of me putting that six down is. And I think that that means two things. One, it keeps it fuzzy. It makes this planning phase possible. And two, it leaves you not in the state of sheer analysis paralysis because the amount of information you have is like, things can change so much that you're not going to just sit there because you don't know what you don't know, right? Like there's enough happening that you just put it down because you can't go off of what you don't know yet. And I think that that's important too. Just to go with that example of like the red six, right? I have a red six in my hand and no other red cards. We're halfway through the game. You haven't played any red cards down either. One of two things are happening, which is like the deck is super stacked with red cards, which could happen, which is, possible uh meaning that i could maybe i want to keep the six because the next card i draw is going to be a 10 and now i'm almost to you know a positive set um or like you're holding a bunch of red cards back uh waiting to see if i'll discard some or waiting to see if you'll draw more low numbers before you start that run Uh, and you just really don't know and i think that keeps again right that makes this like decision space fuzzy yeah. Oh, it's so good. Okay. What should we talk about next? We, we said we were going to talk about scoring incentives and we didn't. So the brilliance of Lost Cities is that anytime you go into a new expedition, you lose 20 points. And every time you play a wager card into an expedition lane, you lose another 20, <laughs> more or less. So that defines the entire trajectory of all the decisions that you make is, can I get to 20? 20 is the inflection point of an expedition. It's this nice round number. If you can get to 20, you are good. You've broken even, more or less. But there's also this aspect of the cards go in value from 2 to 10, which is this huge range because it's either one-tenth of the value you need to quote-unquote break even up to half of the value. Um, And I think that that's really important to the decision-making process too. Help me. Yeah. What I'm getting at, what I'm talking about, you know, players have to call their shot, right? Which is yeah. essentially, can I get to 20? Or otherwise, like, is it worth it to me? Which it might be worth it to you, even if you don't get to 20, frankly. Because yeah. if, if I get to 16, but you've got two wager cards in that color, uh, yeah. then those 16 points for me... Uh, or those my I'm getting taking minus four, but the difference would be like if you I discarded them to the main board, you picked them up, then you're gaining whatever sixteen times three is, right? Yep. For lack of a more eloquent thing, that that is what gives this game the shape that it has, and I I think it also kind of like it adds some tenseness. You are gambling in this game. You're always gambling whenever you kind of do anything, but that, that really like calling it a wager card, making it double up the points you're getting that card. It definitely like evokes that feeling of like, all right, let's gamble. 
I think too, Lost Cities, and they're directly, at least in the English rulebook, called wager cards, which I think is really interesting that it just goes straight to that language that you are wagering. You're, you're sort of like, you're putting a wager in that color for yourself. I think that one thing that it also does, Lost Cities without the wager cards is, would be a perfectly fine game. It'd be a good game. It's interesting. It would still really work. But the wager cards are what make it an excellent game, in my opinion, because of what we talked about, about how it shifts the fuzziness around the decisions that you make. And it leads to these interesting decisions where sort of say, I have a lot of high value. I have a ton of cards of a single color. So I really, really, really want to get wagers in that color down on the table. Because if I'm holding five of that color, I can make them worth so much more if I get a wager down. But if I, because so much of my hand, my my opportunities are locked up in that color, it leaves little room to maneuver around what you're going to do. So you find moments where you might be discarding the two or the three or maybe even the four of a color that you intend to really build up to buy yourself time to get wagers. And I love those moments, right, Jake, where like you you have a whole run in your hand and you, you sort of, you throw the two down and you say, I'll come back for it. You try to draw to get a wager and you try to draw. And I, I think that it just, it's very tense. And there's also the flip side moments of you're holding a wager that you know the scoundrel across the table wants and you just can't put it down. And yeah. it's just, it's junk. It's literal junk to you. The worst thing possible is keeping it in your hand, but you have to. And then there's these like re- release valves. Like finally they put down a three of the other color and you're like, I'm free. I can put this wager down on the table. Yeah. Yeah. And that in its own way is this sort of like punctuated moment within the decision space, right? Where like, Oh, all of a sudden, like all these options became available to me. I can play these cards to the board. The tension releases a little bit. So you have this sort of interesting flow because of that way that system works. It's not just having cards down, but the, the, because the wagers have to go down before any other cards, it creates these, these like little textured, moments within each lane that are really good and i think it's also like it allows for really skill testing decisions in the game of like at what point do i because you can absolutely just kill yourself in this game by waiting too long to build up like the perfect hand um because every time you know you're not playing that to your point you're you're paying a cost in some other way whether that's discarding cards of the main board that your opponent can use, or even just like if you're doing too much discarding the main board and they're just playing twice as many cards as you over the course of the game, even if you get that set, you know, you finally get the wager card or even wager cards you're looking for. It can just be too little too late if you've spent the whole game just like waiting and waiting and waiting for it. So I think like that is, you know, having not played this game like that much in the grand scheme of thing, maybe, you know, 20 times or so, which was easy to do for such a, a quick and light game. It feels to me like that is probably the where the place where the skill ceiling is highest and really good players will separate themselves is like when knowing those timing things of like when to move on. When does phase one become phase two and when does phase two become phase three? At a certain point, it becomes clear to you, my opponent must be holding on to these wager cards you know but if it only becomes clear to you at the very end of the game it's fundamentally too late and you've lost but on the other end if you just go too early making the assumption and then you start drawing them like that really stings too so it's like it is an unknowable thing but i just feel like there is skill in there where good players will like be able to intuit 
the timing for when to move on uh, and, and either take the loss or, or hold. Yep. And I, you know, it's just something I haven't mastered yet. For me, it still feels like I'm just shot in the dark here, but I know that there, I just believe that there's more there. One other place where I feel like players can really differentiate themselves that we haven't touched on too, is that your opportunity to play cards is not equal right? Because of the system of you can play to the shared board or you can play to your expeditions where they count, um, you there's 44 draw cards in the deck at, at the game start, right? 60 minus the 16 cards between the two of you. It's 44 cards. So 44 cards can be drawn between the two of you each game, but cards can also go down to the player board and be picked up by someone. So the opportunity to play in front of you is not set because if jake is mostly if jake spends his turns playing to the middle board and picking up from the middle board that's sort of like a net loss of opportunity to play to his board um and if i spend my turn drawing from the deck and playing to my board it's sort of eroding at that and i think that that's another place where the skill happens right am i playing am i using the time resource that i do have based on the starting hand that i had and my opponent had and the choices that each of us made as effectively as I possibly could. And what that means can really vary because the pace of a game can really vary. If we're both being generous and sort of playing our cards to the middle and we're taking what the other person needs, it's going to be a longer game or more of the cards that we need appear in our expedition boards as we take then later turns to play them. But you can also end up with games where you know, things get covered up, you play to higher values, you spend a lot of time drawing and discarding to the board and what's in the expedition spaces isn't as much. So there's a lot of flux of sort of where the cards can end up if they count or if they don't count. And I think that that sets apart the feel of the game a lot and the skill testing part of the game of knowing when to take the risks is the right time to take the risks. Yeah, I want to just clarify something really quick. I said I played 20 times, but I think I'm thinking more about like each individual play with the oh, game sure. um so i have not played this game 60 times <laughs> so that's just a quick clarification on that but i am looking at my stats now on bgg uh, B- or BGA. On, no, no, on board game arena which has statistics for like the winning players average have you okay. looked at this i haven't what would you guess the number cards of cards played by the winner is so you you have the if you played a card every single time, you could. If both players played and drew, yep. Yeah, no, I'm just yeah, right. If you, what would what's like the max you could even play? It depends on what happens right. with what if, your opponent's if, doing. If your opponent is drawing from, I the think board. I think a good baseline is twenty two. Twenty two, you think would if be you're the above, average winner? If you're, yeah. All if right. you're above twenty two, you're doing good. What is it? So my, that's kind of what I was thinking too. Like, it seems like you're doing doing better if you're playing more cards. My average number of cards played in my game is 20.6. Okay. The average for all players playing this game, 14.8. Wow. What about winners? And the average for winners, 13.9. Dang, we're playing too low value of cards. That, that just helps me the, the importance, right, of building up wagers. The game is about trying to figure out what expeditions to go all in on to yeah. some extent, right? Like spreading too wide, you're just not going to get the payoffs necessary because the value of that turn ends up minimized. It sort of makes sense. Like I feel like we got there kind of in our conversation more than I've got there in my play, but you probably really do want to spend the first sort of that game just building Planning. your hand as much as possible because sometimes like 
being a noob, like I'll have the wager card and, and maybe I have the white wager and I have three white cards in my hand. And I'm like, okay, no brainer. I can just drop this down early and start drawing cards. But as soon as I play that white wager, like all of a sudden, like those cards are going to get incredibly sticky in your hand, right? Yeah, the, the flow of those cards to the center has dried up. They will yeah. not be appearing <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, which I, and I, that is pretty obvious again. Like, I feel like now I'm trying to like hold back what some of my best cards are and best sets for later on in the game. But perhaps I should be doing that just like way, way more. Yeah. Even to the point of when I'm discarding, like you're saying, some two, threes, and fours from those good sets because multiplying a 10 times three is going to make up for a lot of twos and fours over the course of the game. Though the flip side is if I can somehow see that you're going to do that and hold all the wagers in those colors, then that could be potentially really damaging to your opportunity to pursue things elsewhere. But you don't know what, if I'm not playing anything <laughs> to the board, right? Right, like you, yeah, you see, I don't but know. you see what I'm, like you're always signaling something because I'm still, dis, I have to discard something right and which i feel like just highlights the core tension of this game even more of just like man i ideally i'm just drawing a card and doing nothing but i have to do something so what is the least cost to draw a card yeah the game state inexorably marches on towards clarity no matter what you try to do and i think that that's a real strength of this game is that that arc is not independent of the players right they don't have to opt in into putting more information they're forced to we're forced to um and it it gives the game this sense of like driving energy that i think is missing in other games like the arc of a game of lost cities is really really compelling because it's very very tense and exciting as it builds up and some games can be a little bit unexciting in the end right like the, the air can kind of get blown out of them uh but in a lot of games you play, for me, I feel like they say tense down to the very end where I wonder, as the d- draw deck is is dwindling, does does Jake have the, the red nine and ten? Is Are those in the deck and I can still potentially draw them and, and steal them from him if he really wants them? Um, I think that for me, it stays exciting. I don't love that the end is certain, right? Like when when there's six cards left. I, I mostly know that Jake's probably not going to take cards from the from the middle. So then I go, okay, if I'm always taking cards from the middle, I can play five more cards or six more cards. And I think that's another kind of interesting dynamic decision that kind of changes. Like at the beginning of the game, if, if there's a good card for you in the middle, like yeah. I'm very happy to take it. Sure. Um, but towards the end of the game, like there will typically be one player that very much wants the game to, proceed to the fastest end so it kind of creates a dynamic where one person is every time they're picking up a card in the middle just to prolong the game to make sure that they can play out all the cards in their hand that are valuable to them where the other person is drawing a card every time yeah um and then but then it's interesting because it could like switch all of a sudden the person who's drawing all those cards gets one that they oh i actually i can you know now i have an extra card to play so now i can pick one up in the middle I just think it's like it's an interesting little tactical dance where you always would prefer to be the person who has the last play. Um, You know, like I feel like passing back to my opponent when there's one card in the deck always feels bad. Like I would so much rather be the person that's ending it. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It uh, that's I love the way that that plays out. I think, too, if 
if people haven't listened to the Rift Force episode from last week, we sort of have done these two games as a pair. So maybe now naturally is the, the best time for us to comment. And I think that for me, the thing that makes this a 9.5 for me, where last week I was in eight. I think you said uh, eight, yeah. Is that the pacing is just better here. I don't like the the downbeats in Rift Force as much, where I check and draw and the flow gets sort of clunky. I love the way that Lost Cities can just like, glide and then you run down the hill together with each other right like it's just the way that the game art goes it builds and builds and builds it's really really tense and then it gets let out but you have these exciting finishes it just works for me i think the math and the scoring when not playing on bga can be a little bit annoying though sometimes it makes me feel like i'm at the beach with my grandma like we're gonna get our piece of paper out we're gonna get out the calculator and we're gonna do a little math here you know like that's fine it's that's what you do at the beach with your grandma you do math yeah, we do math, math <laughs> exercises. No, we play rummy and we we keep scoring okay. round and round. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I think like, and <laughs> to kind of get into my uh, potential issues with this game, having you know not not played it as much as you know I would like to to get a better formed opinion, but you know that's what happens when we cover a game every week. It's hard to yeah. you know get. And no plays feels satisfactory, especially when you're t- talking about talking about a classic game like this. Um, but my potential issue is like I feel like Rift Force. Uh, it feels more determinative to me based on play, where I think there are, mm. and this is absolutely not saying that there isn't tremendous amount of skill ceiling in Lost Cities. I believe that to be definitely true, but like it does feel like there's a lot of just kind of at my skill level, just like unlucky moments that happen. Mm. And maybe I'll feel differently if I try the new strategy, a new strategy of like, just like waiting much longer to start playing cards down. Like that feels like a more determinative way to play the game. Um, but there are a lot of times where I just feel like I played, I played the the six on top of a four and yep, drew the five like next time, you know, and just like, there's just lots of little like unlucky moments like that, or I'm just like waiting so, so long to get specific cards that just never come up. Or like in the most recent game we played, like you just happen to draw all the tens. It's like, that's going to be very difficult to overcome uh, your opponent getting a lot of tens. Um, And Perhaps uh, Ryan McKenzie was aware of that, and which is why he chose to set this game up as a game that plays three three times as like a general rule, like outside of a tournament setting or something. I don't think I'm a big fan of games that just like sort of mandate multiple rounds to players. Like, yeah, there's a lot of luck in this game, so play it three times, and then there'll be like a better chance that the person who played better wins. That's just like to me, not a super satisfying design principle. Does it work for you here better than it does in other games? Or is it just generally you dislike it, period? It does work better for me here. Uh, And I think the reason for that is like here compared to a different game we've covered that has the same phase. (coughs) Fox in the Forest. Oh, sure. It works Uh, better in Fox in the Forest too. but It works better in Fox in the Forest than Jaipur. But I think it works best in Lost Cities. Because you have the most room to like fundamentally change the way that you're playing the game. Like if I know I'm 50 points down going into the last round of the game, like that changes the decisions I'm making. You're swinging for the fences over the course of the game, right? Yeah. Where you, where in like Jaipur or whatever, like there's nothing that you can really 
do differently fundamentally. Yeah, you're still playing that core loop. Um, so yeah. I do think it works better here, but also, I mean, it also has the same problems as a lot of the other games. Like if you're down 50 points going the last round, well, you're probably not going to win. Yeah. You know, I totally, I also, I just, I, I don't know. I, I really like that aspect of the game that you just mentioned, Jake, that it basically justifies its own existence by giving you the room to take meaningful risks to make comebacks like comeback the comeback mechanism is real here uh, and i think it's interesting but i don't think it needs three rounds to justify its existence personally like i think i'm happy perfectly happy to play a game of lost cities and feel like the outcome is fair right like there's definitely games where maybe my hand is bad but i think that the agency of your ability to play out of a bad hand because of the importance of the planning phase early is real. Like I never feel so saddled. I it's really, really rare that I feel completely saddled with an unwittable hand outside of Jake's starting hand is three wager cards and then right. five cards, the, you know, 10, nine, eight, seven, six of the same color. That that would suck. Definitely. And all we should all say like the game is sufficiently short to where this sure. is like a very minor criticism right yeah you know we're talking about a 10 minute game here or whatever to play around so if your opponent draws all the tens um so what like we just play we, again we just move on and play again but i think like just for my own design preference like i think a game if if the if there's a lot of luck in the game and the game is satisfying and fun then like leave it to players like we're yeah. gonna keep playing best two out of three or you know we'll you know you can easily just say like we're going to play five rounds, and whoever has the most points at the end of five rounds, they win. And if people, people want to do play that, a... like power to them. But I don't think the game needs to like dictate to you. Yeah, you have to play this three times, or it's not an official play of the game. This you is know? Jake saying you don't actually control me. I'm here for the game. I'll follow your rules then, but you don't. You don't get to decide my behavior outside the game. I, yeah, I just, I just don't think there's. And, and, this is obviously like a 25 year old game or whatever. Yeah. 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 But you still see that in a lot yeah. of other um, modern games. So I think like for me, if I'm a designer, like I would include something like that. Like here's the tournament rules. Yeah. I think in lost cities, I, I have to wonder if just I, I'm lacking the context of this, but I do wonder if there was this pressure for the game to feel like a larger game than just a small card game the publication of it it's uh, presented with this really nice fold-out board the cards are tarot size cards that you're presented with and i think that the the structure the three game structure is as much to sort of mitigate randomness as it is to say this is a full experience worthy of two players time for an evening game session this is a full gameplay experience it's not uh, a frivolous side side uh observation right like a side thing like this can be your game night and i think that it's doing that as much as it's trying to mitigate randomness to yeah. some extent just based on its positioning my and i when we play um historically we'll just play until we get tired of playing we won't actually keep track from round around but we'll see who won the most games out of whatever it is you know right. we'll play best of seven or best of five yeah yeah and i think like the fact that it is interesting I, in, in to some extent of when you're in like round three and like I'm nursing a 23 point lead. Like how yeah. do I play more conservatively to, you know, make sure I win this or do I just keep playing straight up, taking the same risks? I, I mean, I think that is interesting and fun too, but it also like it again, it's sort of like in order for that to fully work in that way, like you still have to like get 
cards and decisions that like enable you to make those interesting choices sometimes also the core decisions of lost cities are so fun that i kind of just want to play base lost cities not like metagame lost cities where i'm like playing hyper defensively like discarding weird cards to the center to hold later cards so my opponent can't make comebacks in round three yeah you know like i'd rather just play lost cities (laughs) right exactly um but i think that's just probably more personal preference anything else and you know even despite these criticisms it's definitely a game i want to keep playing definitely a game like i would i would really uh be happy to own this game my collection and i don't say that about many games we cover here get it and i I actually looked for it when i was at miniature market last time and they didn't have it uh so yeah that's not an empty idle threat but yeah i'm trying to think are there other important things that we should cover on this episode before we say uh goodbye i think for me we've really touched on a lot of the major things the only thing that i'd say is if you if you find yourself really enjoying lost cities definitely check out shot and totten slash battle line they're basically the same experience more or less um i really like shot and totten i think i like lost cities more um lost cities is more about pacing and card efficiency and shot and totten uh the flow of the game is much more consistent it's it's much more linear um it's it's really fun. They both have a similar thing going on where you're trying to sort of discern what the decisions, the clarity of the decision space, like where it's going to end up. Both really good games. I think that Lost Cities, just that, that game arc, it's tough to beat. Do yeah. you have any closing thoughts, Jake? I guess my closing thought is just to like think back about last week's episode Rift Force. And, you know, we didn't plan out that we were going to swap ratings exactly. That kind of happened yeah. naturally. But I do think it's telling that... Uh, these two games are both fantastic games and yeah. both probably are going to appeal uh, to slightly different people and slightly different tastes. Like I think that like lost cities is a game I would love to teach to like my mom yeah, uh, and like that type of person. Whereas like if I was going to teach a game to somebody who I knew played like magic, the gathering or something, then it's like no brainer. Like I would want to show them rift force. And I do think like, you know, like the core game in these games is probably to me, like I enjoy them at a very similar level, but mm-hmm. like I give Rift Force a slight edge because I like the drafting different elements part of this game. And mm-hmm. that gives me like a little bit of like ownership of this like deck that I've created to where if I get unlucky there, I feel and even if it's unlucky just because of like the numbers and cards I've drawn, like I feel like, okay, well I had some, agency here where it's like when we're drawing out of the same deck and i'm just thinking like oh brendan's getting all the good cards i'm getting all the crap ones you know it makes that feel like you know i think i think i'm interpreting a bigger difference in the amount of randomness and luck between these two games because of some of those factors than that really exist if you like uh really get down to like crunching the numbers and, and all that so i just think both fantastic games. I think if you listen to these two episodes, you probably will have like a really good idea of which game might fit better with you uh, and or better with certain people in your life. But I think both like absolutely worth your time and consideration. Uh, and, you know, for me, I, I will be very happy to continue playing both games. 
I'm pleased to say too J- that Jake is over here nodding his head to the sound of the the good writer Kinesia playing today <laughs> on Decision Space. Uh, I don't know what's next. We're gonna have to. We'll cover another Reiner Kinesia game one day, just like we'll cover another Steffenfeld game eventually. I feel bad. Jake's favorite being Steffenfeld, mine being more Reiner Kinesia. It's been a while since we've covered a Feld. Yeah, because you won't play Bonfire with me. So ooh, it belongs in a Bonfire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You haven't even finished one game. Well, I did. We finished it. Oh, we did. I think so. I think it. I think it got abandoned. Oh, f- by you. Oh God. Not well, maybe turn. we should play Macau. Yeah, fine. Or, or okay, okay. We can play it better. We'll talk about it. All really? Right. Okay. Yeah. If I can get through the the cones of bonfire. Bonfire is really good. Oh, okay. I'll let's talk. It is way quicker than you think. Okay. Okay. And now I'm playing I'm playing War Chest on Yukata, so adding more games there might be good. We'll bring order to the BGA Yukata force back in, yeah. in our lives. Okay. Well, with that, maybe a, a hint into the future. We'll see, no promises. But next week for our pre-planners out there, we're gonna be covering uh we're actually gonna be doing a what we talk about episode about size versus and depth of decision spaces. Those are two sort of different concepts. We're gonna go into uh the definitions of each of those, talk about sort of our thoughts on each of them and sort of see if we can leave with new lenses like we always like to do in our What We Talk About episode for all you listeners. I think they're going to be really, really good. If you have other ideas for us to cover, let us know. We're always happy to hear your suggestions. And you can let us know in our Discord. There's a link to join in our show notes. Uh, Discord is just basically a chat room that you can join from your web browser. Uh, Or you can let us know via Twitter or by leaving us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at DecisionSpa, S-P-A, or just leave us a a note on BoardGameGeek. We have a blog there. If you just Google BoardGameGeek Decision Space, you'll surely find it. Or you could send us an email at DecisionSpa at gmail.com we always love getting emails from listeners and we've gotten some really thoughtful nice messages with good feedback in the past and we can't express how much we appreciate hearing from listeners in all those avenues uh as always we'd like to thank henry for their hit song reach out our intro and outro song and until next week i hope you have a good one bye y'all.